0: And welcome back to this week's episode of the Mike the Gardener gardening podcast sponsored by those lovely people at Natural Grower who supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. Crammed with certified organic growing power, if you're looking for amazing results with all of your fruit and vegetables, your flower beds, your lawns and houseplants, then Natural Growers Award-Winning Certified Organic Peat-Free Compost and Fertiliser knock the socks off chemical products. All products are certified organic, 100% chemical-free and 100% peat-free and those lovely people at Natural Grower have given me an exclusive 10% discount off all products for my listeners. Just pop MIC10, M-I-C, the number 10, in the apply coupon field when you check out. In this week's episode, I chat to climate change gardening expert Kim Stoddart. Kim's new book, The Climate Change Garden, which she co-authored alongside Sally Morgan, gives us a fascinating insight into climate change and how we as gardeners need to adapt our own working practices to achieve bountiful and productive gardens in a world where the weather patterns are constantly changing and at times becoming extremely challenging. In the episode, Kim tells us about how the changing weather patterns impact how we garden, how it's impacting the timing and the arrival of types of pests we find in our garden, and how looking at the gardening practices and approaches of yesteryear and embracing thrift and connection could actually lead us to better resilience in our own green spaces. We chat about what's being forecast by the experts – More of the same? Hotter, drier summers and wet, windy winters? And it's definitely time to put down our things to-do lists and connect with nature. Listen to nature and let her tell us what needs to be done, rather than following a prescriptive timetable of actions and tasks to be carried out in our own green spaces. You'll no doubt recall I spoke to Andrew Timothy O'Brien just last week about the importance of stopping, standing and staring to connect with nature and to let her dictate what needs to be done in the garden through careful observation. There's definitely, definitely something in this, isn't there? This is a truly fascinating, enlightening and very informative episode and another where I've no doubt you'll be reaching for pen and paper to jot down some of the things that we can do to alleviate the problems that we experience as a result of climate change. So, without any further ado, here's our chat. Tim, welcome to the Mike the Gardener Gardening podcast. Now, it seems these days we continually hear ourselves saying we don't have seasons anymore. We've had a month's worth of rain in one day. I've never known the temperature to be so hot or so cold for the time of year. Now, we've heard the terms climate change, global warming being bandied around for years. But what do these terms actually mean?
1: Thank you for having me on your fantastic show it's great to be here i just want to say that first thing. thank you um yeah this is the thing i mean when i first started talking about climate change which was quite a long time ago now i think in the press it was probably for the guardian back in about 2013 it was a term that seemed more associated with this idea that we'd have balmy mediterranean like warm summer evenings be able to grow lots of produce that was mediterranean like and climate change was a, a term that didn't seem quite so scary but increasingly with the greater extremes of weather that we've been feeling on the ground as gardeners been seeing around the world it's extreme weather events it's very much about no longer gardening as usual effectively that we need to shore up the defenses to help really for for our own sake, for help us as gardeners to deal with all the changes that are happening, as well as actually implementing these changes in our gardens themselves as well. So, there's an awful lot of challenges, but there are opportunities as well, I have to say. I always take a very upbeat, solution focused approach to this. You know, you have to put that out there first.
0: So, you said then no longer gardening as usual. So, what is the impact upon our gardeners, our plants, the planet, um, and us as gardeners?
1: Well, the, the main, I suppose the main impact is that the seasons are no longer reliable as we have known them to be throughout our lifetime. So you can't rely on the exact instructions on the seed packet that you, you need to plant at a certain time of year. So seasons have become more unpredictable. It's very much the topsy-turvy extremes, extremes of weather. So you can get one weather system that can then so very easily flip to another so that creates an awful lot of challenges. So I mean, a classic example of this is not so much this year, we've had very warm conditions very early in the year. Mm. We think spring's come early and everyone's got very excited and carried away and sowing lots of seed with gusto. And then you get uh, followed by a cold snap. So does that. And it's also the fact that with plants, say, for example, with um, annuals, sometimes you can see the impact immediately of an extreme weather event. But Sometimes it's not quite so obvious, so there can be longer term damage to, for example, perennial planting that can make it more at risk to pests and disease. And that's the other issue as well. The main issue is that there's a greater risk of pests and disease because you have migratory pests that are moving in. So climate changes. You have pests that can overwinter um, and also there are potentially more breeding seasons for pests as well. So unfortunately, that is a real on the ground challenge that our plants are being battered, as are we, and that makes them more vulnerable to pests and disease.
0: Now, that's strange you should say that because I was out in the garden uh, quite a few weeks ago. It was um, the end of February going into March, and I saw a lily beetle on the lilies that were just emerging. Now, in olden days... We would, we would have had a winter and that would possibly have put paid to those sorts of sightings of those sorts of insects. So, yeah, I, I've seen it myself in my own garden. I'm on the south coast, which is relatively tropical comparatively sometimes.
1: Nature's confused. We're all confused. It's it's just there are so many different things that are happening and there's so many sightings of pollinators at the wrong time of year. And again, it's nature isn't quite sure what to do. Um, it just means that this system of gardening that we've become so used to where we have very exacting instructions, we have very exacting ways of doing things and we're very reliant on buying a lot of things in and we're very reliant on lots of traditions it's being very much thrown out the window mm. and it's much more about being able to empower yourself to make decisions based on what is happening at the time so I think really it's also channeling much more of a an older traditional form of gardening that was very much you know if you think before we all had garden centers and multifarious you know no doubt very exciting purchasing opportunities <laughs> there was much more of a a connection with the natural world and a way of make mend and do because there wasn't so much that we could just rely on and buy in so there are there are opportunities and i think one of the experiences that was the most beneficial for me in my my gardening adventures in climate change gardening is um just when i was gardening for free for the guardian back in about 2013 and i did literally attempt to garden entirely for free so it doesn't make you a lesser lesser type of gardener. It actually can build a lot of skills, reducing the amount of money that you'll spend on your on your gardening. And actually, um, the, the idea of thrift, the idea of connection really helps when it comes to building resilience overall.
0: Now, you've written a book, The Climate Change Garden with Sally Morgan, yes. and we'll talk about the book and how that came about later. But in the book, you actually say that The UK is warmer by an average of about 0.8 degrees centigrade compared to a period of 1961 to 1990 and I just wondered what is being forecast for the future and does it necessarily follow that things will just continue to get worse or warmer and wetter. Because we've had changes like this before, haven't we, historically? We
1: have, yeah, absolutely. There's an awful lot of uncertainty over this, and the science is changing all the time, to be honest with you. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty over what the the overriding uh, impact of climate change is going to be. We do know that our climate is warming, mm. and that the more that it warms, then the more we're going to experience the the extremes of weather because the climate is struggling. So it's very much trying to to readdress the changes that are taking place. So what this means are things like water shortages. It means that the, the plants that we're growing now, some of the varieties will no longer be fit for purpose in the future. And, for example, there's been talk about tomatoes being... a a form of produce that will struggle in the future. There's been loads of research done into whether wild varieties of produce offer solutions for the future. There's been all sorts of research um, looking into what we're going to actually have to deal with. But ultimately what what we need to do is build resilience to help us to mitigate that. So temperature wise, ultimately just to summarize that, because there is so much I could say here. So I'm trying to realize- I've got
0: so out. many questions to ask now. I <laughs> know it's great, <I'm> getting excited.
1: <laughs> uh, but it's um, ultimately, it is going to be very challenging. It is going to be very challenging, but the natural world does actually offer a lot of solutions. And it does mean that there will be opportunities for growing different varieties of crop that we can't currently. So crops that grow elsewhere in the world will be able to, to grow um, successfully here. So there are opportunities as well, but it's just, again, this very formulaic way of doing things that is, is the challenge more than anything because we're creating gardening spaces that and gardens that are very, very needy of our attention. Mm. So more we can allow the natural world in to readdress the balance, the better that will be overall, rather than keeping our, our garden's so meticulously tidy and primped and polished and almost like another room of the house.
0: Now, I, I've i got to put my hands up, Kim, and say I was always one of those gardeners that come October, everything would be felled, the perennials would be brought to the ground, cut up and composted. But I've already learnt the benefits of keeping everything in situ Everything is left naturally. So there's places for wildlife to overwinter. The soil is protected. So I guess I've had to adapt and I guess for gardeners across the world now, because we don't know what's going to come. We are just going to have to adapt to the situation that we find ourselves in now and going forward
1: absolutely 100% and with the very challenging experience that we've all been through with the pandemic global pandemic which has been about keeping everybody safe and secure and you know this one one bright side of that is that more people than ever have become connected with their gardens mm. and the natural world within them so there is a movement at the moment where people are realizing the importance of connecting with the natural world and also, from a climate change perspective, something that I think is rather good to know is that if you can take time just to be in your outside space, throw aside this exacting to-do list, you know, so many gardeners feel so guilty. We all know, we all have this, so we feel guilty we're not doing enough, and oh, there's more we should be doing. But actually, if you can just at some point throw that aside and take time to maybe just tune into a border Just look and watch, and you will see wildlife. You will see, you will see the amazing nature that's there. And being in that state of emotional regulation, which is what will happen if you can be mindful, that will help you to tap into the executive functioning part of your brain, which enables you to think strategically and to problem solve. So if you're rushing around feeling guilty all the time, you're not going to be able to, to think about solutions for your own space from a climate change savvy perspective. So I quite like this because it's quite a good way of thinking, you know, we can all get a bit competitive that we're not, if someone's looking and you're just sitting there, just staring
0: at your border, <laughs>
1: they no, I'm tapping into the executive functioning part of my brain to help me figure out how to be a climate change savvy gardener.
0: I'm loving this because I think we hear so much about what we need or what we're supposed to be doing in our gardens, on the television, on social media. There's this continual rampage of do this, do that. Now's the time to finish doing this. Now's the time to start doing that. Absolutely. Actually just connecting, as you say, and observing nature and what's happening in your garden is fundamental I think to how I will be going forward watching the plants watching the wildlife and taking my taking my leave from them to see what's actually happening.
1: Yeah and I think as well with everything that we've been through as a as a nation um, it's just there's so many continued challenges for people and it's really hard um, for people to feel completely okay all of the time right now I and mean, i've written for the lancet about this and it's just at the moment everybody is to a greater extent quite fight or flight because we've had the pandemic we haven't coped with that yet we haven't had time to heal our mm. pandemic because we've gone straight into a war then a cost of living crisis and there's a myriad of other things that are going on so Being kind to yourself in that way also will help make you a better gardener, but also it's a way of actually feeling good yourself. So it's really important because with climate change gardening, yes, there are things you can do, lots of things you can do, which we're going to talk about to actually build resilience. But actually, you need to build resilience in yourself in order to be able to mitigate these changes and these challenges ahead so that is absolutely essential but building confidence in yourself making it your own but also doing this in a way that is nurturing for you as an individual I think is incredibly important
0: yeah I agree look inwards first let's let's just repair ourselves heal ourselves then we can go forward with hopefully renewed ideas and vigor um, and adapt to the situation that we find ourselves in
1: yeah and it makes it more enjoyable as well that's the thing it's it's you know gardening is such an amazing amazing thing it's brilliant everyone should have access to the ability to garden and it is just such a potentially nurturing thing for us to do to connect with the natural world to grow plants to, to put food on the table, to see the wildlife it is, it is such a fantastic thing. Obviously, I'm biased, given what I do for a living, but even so. I...
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're knocking on an open door here as well, because I think it's very easy to lose sight of why we garden and the pleasure that we can actually get by connecting with nature. As we said earlier, because you're looking at this checklist of things to do, rushing around and not actually looking what's happening and observing really closely.
1: Absolutely. And I think what you said, um, it's really important that it's this, this sense of guilt. So, I, you know, I do run courses with gardeners of all different levels of experience. And a common thread I find is that people feel very, very guilty. And I think that, again, you see these beautiful gardens in magazines, TV shows, but a lot of the time it's, it, there's, a, there's a team of people behind the scenes mm. that are actually making the gardens look like that as well. So I think it's important for people to realise that.
0: Yeah, and I think social media has a part to play in this. We see yes. these perfect images because people aren't necessarily prepared to show a failed plant or a plant that's diseased or it's got a virus on it. That's just all filtered away so we see good 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 all the time and it sets a very very high standard an almost unattainable standard for new gardeners especially.
1: Yeah 100% so I think cutting people some slack to realize that not everything's going to work um, but also to spend some time actually you know if you think the best way to learn is often from mistakes so some of the best things that I do now I've learned purely by experimenting and through having failures, because that is how you learn. That's how you really own, own a particular issue by actually trying different things and then realizing what works and what doesn't. And I think making it your own is incredibly important because everybody's space is different. Mm. So although there are solutions that are very, very useful across the board, everybody lives in different, you know, different space, different part of the UK, different garden different ways you want to use the garden. So it's incredibly important to feel that that is a space that you are actually owning, creating for yourself.
0: Hear, hear to that, absolutely. We've had uh, a hot summer last year with droughts. We've had a hard winter in 2023. In my own garden, I know from people who um, contact me, salvias, penstemons, hebes that maybe once have got through, maybe haven't. I know I've lost some plants in my garden. You alluded earlier to the fact that we may need to look at the plants that we grow. Are there sort of stalwarts of our English country garden that we could possibly lose if things continue the way they are?
1: I think the classic, um, the classic example to give is the um, traditional lawn.
0: Think, oh gosh, yes. Yeah.
1: I think the traditional lawn because we have experienced, particularly the last couple of years, with the heat wave and the drought during the summer, that um very, very manicured lawns cut quite short to the ground um, are very, very vulnerable to drought, and then you have hose pipe ban that's been brought in and water shortages are going to be an issue in the future. And hose hose pipe bans are going to become more and more common, unfortunately, with this as well. Water is going to be a huge, huge issue. I can't emphasize that enough. So water capture, you know, shoring up the defenses, making the best use of water when it's an ample supply is absolutely integral, but also from a lawn perspective, Allowing lawn to, um, to grow a little longer, to allowing some non invasive weeds to move in, um, you know, buttercups, plantain, it will all massively help the lawn to stand firm. So, that again, it's taking this idea of the aesthetic and a lot of it, there's a lot I could say there, but I think, again, very much the idea of keeping nature in its place keeping things very neat and tidy, very short, very cut to the ground, in the case of a lawn, is that actually leaving it potentially more vulnerable. The other thing I should feed in there as well is that the use of fertilisers can actually uh, make plants much more vulnerable and needy of attention. It's a bit like fast food almost.
0: Okay, tell us that. why.
1: So to give you an example of this, I mean, if you're growing in pots, you are going to need to feed your plants. That's that's a different matter entirely. But if you are growing in the ground, overusing fertilizers can actually make plants more needy of your attention. And from a soil health perspective, you know, the world below the ground is full of microorganisms, Amazing things like mycorrhizal fungi, which combines itself to plants' roots to help it find food and water. And if you're using a lot of fertilizers, if you're overwatering as well, then what will happen is that a plant can develop much shallower roots because it becomes quite lazy. Whereas less is more. If you build the um, the goodness of the soil, and if you don't feed too much and water too much, then your plant can actually seek much further afield through its root system digging down deeper and further and wider to help find these natural heroes of the soil that will build resilience which making it you know therefore creates a plant that is more resilient and it's less work for you as the gardener and less mm. costly because the plant is actually seeking out more of what it needs for itself
0: now Your book is great because it gives us some fantastic hints and tips on what to do in periods of drought um, and excess water. So looking at the drought situation, I think it's very easy for gardeners to reach for the hose and splosh the hose all over the garden. But from what you're saying there, that's not necessarily a good thing to do. So can you maybe share just a few ideas for how gardeners can save water, conserve water and harvest water in their gardens?
1: absolutely i think if i start as well by explaining that with my own personal circumstances i have really tested this to the limit because i think it gives you an idea of how far that can be taken so i live on a small holding west wales uh very high up 750 foot above sea level and been uh, very much exposed to lots of different elements and i have a private water supply which the last few years, particularly since 2018, has been running, unfortunately, lower and lower each year during the summer months. So I was down to 10 gallons of water last summer for quite a lot of the summer. So that, that's not enough for the house, Goodness let, me. Alone, let alone for the actual garden. So my plants just had to make do with very, very little. And so a lot of these techniques that we've been talking about in the book and I've been teaching about have really been tested to the limit. And I was amazed by how well plants coped last summer, not being watered at all in the polytunnels outside for, for weeks and weeks on end. So the key, um, the key elements to reducing the amount of water, having set the scene for how far I pushed it last <laughs>
0: year,
1: are really uh, no dick. So no dig, building the natural resilience in the soil. Um, So watering, a lot of people are aware of watering in the right way. So watering, if you are doing that early in the morning, later on in the day, so you're not just, um, you know, the water's just not evaporating away. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very important to water deep into the ground. So if you just water quite often, then you're quite often doing a surface watering So that's much easier to be dried out by the glare and the heat of the sun. So you want to water less often and water very, very deeply. So the water can permeate deep into the ground, water the soil, not the leaves. And then use mulches. There are lots of things you can use as a mulch. You can use a thin layer of grass clippings. You can use wood chip. Um, Again, a thin layer is fine. There's not too much nitrogen in that. Compost, leaf mold, uh, Come free. you could even pick off foliage if there's some spent foliage or nibbled plant foliage use that as a mulch you can improvise with what you have to hand and that will help to keep the water in i also use a system of mixed planting so i don't plant in blocks or rows i have lots of different plants all over the place, lots of distance between plants of the same family. So it's very free-spirited.
0: Yeah, free-spirited planting, which you refer to in the book, yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's known as polyculture in permaculture circles. And I use an awful lot of ground cover. That's also very, very key. So Ground cover will help to protect the soil from drying out quite so quickly because if you imagine a bare patch of soil that's exposed to the sun, it's going to dry out compared to if you imagine, say, for example, on a veg patch, if you have sprawling winter squash leaves, they act like umbrellas Mm. and they're protecting the soil from drying out. So again, and it's also from that perspective with ground cover, you're making the best use of space. So, there's a cost of living crisis at the moment. So, just grow as much as you can. And, you know, you can use things like uh, summer herbs and um, salad leaves as fillers in between other plants. So, just making the best use of space will give you more produce to eat as well.
0: And I guess when it comes to watering, there are certain plants which are priority and certain plants which we don't need to water because they're established and their roots, as you say, have gone down into the depths of the soil. So knowing those plants is a really important thing as well.
1: Absolutely. And it's there's been a lot of traction around the importance of planting trees as well with regards to carbon capture, uh, with regards to biodiversity. So um, anything perennial in nature is going to be beneficial because it will have as you say do deep, deeper longer spreading you know far far widening root systems um which are likely to be more resilient overall it's obviously a very generic statement but it does help also when it comes to the risk of flooding as well so if you look at the other extreme mm. the risk of flooding perennials can actually help to soak up water also so on the flip side if you look at this particular risk of nutrient leach away over winter especially if you have this classic example of at the end of the season this idea of tidying up the the garden meticulously moving things away turning over the soil you're just opening up to the elements so that's a real risk so using lots of perennial plants letting things grow on for longer is very very beneficial and wildlife are wildlife for our, for our own well-being to see a garden that's full of wildlife but for natural pest control you know mm. you want to create an eat and be some and biodiverse world that can help to keep these this this threat of greater numbers of pests in check. So, not meticulously tidying your garden will help from that perspective. So, very long answer your question. Sorry, um, <laughs> I am very excited about this, but yeah, absolutely, perennials are key. So, perennials as much as you can, and biodiversity of planting.
0: Okay, now we we've touched on the opposite side of this: the heavy rainfall, so much rain at certain times of the year, all through the year but that is such a precious commodity. How can we capture that? And I know in the book you have a mantra that you talk about for rainwater.
1: Oh, yes. Um, Slow it, spread it, sink it um, is massively important if there's a a risk of of flooding. So a risk of heavy rain. Um, Rainwater capture, you can capture so much water from even a shed. So just trying to capture water as much as you can is key. If you take a row of terraced houses in an area that might be at risk of flooding, if everybody in that row of terraced houses was to put a, even a bin, something, a makeshift bin outside to capture water, it's going to help to slow the flow. But water will find a way. So Uh, The RHS has done a lot around um, greening over front gardens and trying to avoid hard surfaces. So porous surfaces are key as well. So you want water to be able to to soak away. But you can do lots of really exciting things. You can create a dipping pond, for example. So if you have an area that is at risk of flooding, you could create um, a pond that could be used during the summer months, just dip your watering can in literally a dipping pond so you can water your plants. So it doesn't have to be a traditional water, vat there are lots of ways of, of capturing rainwater when it's an ample supply, but it's an incredibly important thing to do. And I think, again, it's this idea of just thinking on your feet and working around what we have each different time and how to make the best use of that. I mean, in lots of different countries in the world, there's been issues with water for a long, long time. Mm. So there's lots of um, solutions to be found from different countries as well. The way that water is captured, you can get um, old containers. There's all sorts of things you can do to make the best use of water and to capture it. It's incredibly important.
0: Yeah. And I think, again, this is this adaptation. Gardeners need to adapt to the situation. Um, I read somewhere there's so much information available to us now. One roof over the course of a year can capture 240,000 litres of water. Now, that is a colossal amount of water. So if we can harvest some of that in one way or another or slow it down or sink it or spread it, that's got to be good news for the planet, let alone our gardens
1: absolutely and it feels good to do that it feels little um well i say it's little action it's not little action at all it all counts but even setting up one one single water butt um is a massively positive action the thing with climate change is that it feels so incredibly big and overwhelming so small solution at a time thing by thing that you can do to actually shore up the defenses is a way of actually making you feel good in the process so Um, capturing rainwater, I would definitely count as being one of the most positive actions that you could take.
0: You, You mentioned something then about this whole subject being a little overwhelming. As someone who's become particularly close to the subject, how worried are you and how worried should we be about the future and climate change? I know in your book, you refer to climate change anxiety.
1: I think that well, I see I see this actually time and time again with the courses that I run for the general public and talks that I do. That it is it is definitely a thing. It's there's been this coin that's been termed for for good reason. But it's people feel so overwhelmed, and the 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 more that you can build, I mean, you know, um, say for example, whether it's capturing rainwater or you know, lots of these different positive actions, they all add up, and I think that. It's a way of taking control back. Obviously, I'm biased because of the nature of what I do, but gardening is one of the most positive actions Mm. comes to, to climate change because if you can grow food, even on a windowsill, for example, you are saving plastic, you are reducing air miles, you are feeling that connection with the natural world, so it's good for your well-being. But whether it's taking something that has been kicking around in an old cupboard, like an old bread bin, and turning it into a planter, or reusing, recycling, repurposing. This is a way of taking control back from our very, because we know we've lived in this very uh, very disposable, very consumerism-orientated society. And unfortunately, it doesn't make us feel good. Um, you know, we live in a very quick fix world. And I think that reducing the amount that we're consuming by repurposing is also incredibly positive action. And gardeners are great at that as well. You know, making compost, mm. make leaf mold. These are all incredibly nurturing things to do that makes it feel like it's less coming down upon us, makes it feel like we can, we can get through this together. And I think another really important thing with this is that we need to come together all of us as gardeners as communities to help each other we've had to be we've had to be separate to keep people safe during the pandemic and the more that we can work together for the future sharing bartering doing swaps again it makes you feel good and it makes you yeah. less alone with this so we are we are all in this together so i think reaching out to local gardening clubs to local neighbors communities giving them some plants doing swaps encouraging people to grow is an incredibly important thing to do for the future with climate change
0: here here and i know from the many people who contact me who listen to this podcast gardeners of all experience levels who are passionate about trying to do something. We've all seen firsthand the drought, the summer of last year, the harsh winter we've just been through. What are we going to do? So having you along to talk about this, Kim, is just great to pass that message on to people who probably thinking, what can we do? And as you say, if we work collectively, share hints and tips, that's got to be a great way to go forward. Now your book, your fantastic book, The Climate Change Garden, which I have here in front of me, how did this come about? It's published by Green Rocket Books. It's just been republished and you've worked with Sally Morgan on this book. Tell us all about the book. How did it come about and how much research have you had to do for this book yourself?
1: Thank you. Well, Sally and I have known each other for quite a few years. Um, Sally edits the Soil Association magazine and Um, I edit the organic way magazine for garden organics so we're very like-minded and we met back in it's about 2018 um, just to have a chat because we felt very passionately that there was need for a a guide for gardeners to help them cope with all the changes that were taking place so this was published with sponsorship from a couple of companies Um, so that was done through green rocket books as a way of getting this out there. And then we spoke to, I had conversations with Quarto Publishing, Cool Springs Press, and they have worked with us on an updated version of the book, which includes new chapters and there's new introduction and new pictures. So it's really updated as a global gardener's guide to climate change. So that has just been released by by Quarto, Cool Springs Press. But yeah, Sally and I both, we have spent years researching we're both complete geeks so (laughs) we're excited by the um all the different things that are happening around the world so we've looked to the past we've looked to different cultures and key thing with this is just to keep constantly experimenting as Mm. well trying out new ways of doing things and that is there's there's so much hope with this so you know this particular guide is meant to be a very solution focused upbeat way of looking at what can be done to help gardeners show up the defences, because there are opportunities with all of this.
0: And I will say, although we've covered some solutions within the podcast here today, there is so much in the book, so much more in the book. So that's The Climate Change Garden. It's a great read, very kindly being sent a copy. There's so much in there and it's just information you can take away and employ in your own green space, no matter how large or small that may be great practical advice in there so great book. Thank you. Now Geek or Not Kim Stoddart you were awarded the Garden Media Guild Beth Chateau Environmental Journalist of the Year Award so you've been doing this work now for quite a long time so congratulations on that and I have to say I was privileged to be able to present you with the award on the day so a huge well done from me and it's just a delight to have you on the podcast here today.
1: Oh thank you I was so chuffed. I had to slow myself down walking up to the stage. I wanted to <laughs> run. <laughs> I always leapt up on the stage as well. I had to hold myself back and I was so excited. Thank you.
0: So how do you balance your work? As you've said here earlier, you have your own garden. Uh, you don't have always the water supply that maybe you would like. It's this This has come from a real place. This isn't just theory. This is from your own practice and from your own garden.
1: Absolutely. It's... I think with my my thing is really about resilience overall. So it's I do a lot of work with all sorts of different groups. I do RHS events. I do training for botanic gardens. Um, I've done work with people with learning challenges, uh, long term unemployed, social housing providers. I'm currently doing work with food banks as well to help show how people can grow food on a budget. And for me, I just feel passionately that gardening, growing food is so, so important for the future. And it's about resilience, building resilience. This is something that everybody would benefit from doing, from the ability to grow food. I think companies around the UK should get involved for their employees to reach out in the community. I just think that, there are so many solutions to be found from this. Mm. So, yeah, for me personally, this is what this is what really drives me. It's um, I live and breathe this. I mean, my background's actually in business and PR because I'm from Brighton originally, and I moved to my small holding about 12 years ago with the desire to. To really just make gardening a career, to sort of turn my love of gardening, growing food into a career. So I feel very passionately about that for me as a person, I want to get involved to help make this this more of a reality for lots of different people and to help people cope with all the changes that are happening.
0: Oh, well, you're certainly doing that, Kim. In your own garden, what are you growing this year? That's maybe you've talked about experimenting anything that you're experimenting with this year. That you can share with us all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I again I'm always trying new varieties, I'm always trying out different ways of doing things. So um I'm going to be experimenting a lot more with wood chip this year. Um, my friend Ben Raskin's written an amazing book just on wood chip. So it goes to show what you can do with this amazing resource and you can get it free from tree surgeons. So I'm going to be making a lot more of my own compost, and you can actually make seed compost from wood chip if you leave it for three, four years. You need to obviously have space mm. to do that. I'm doing a lot more with um, uh, leaf mold as well. I get very excited about leaf mold. So oh, you
0: and I, I both.
1: Yeah, you know, It's amazing, isn't it?
0: I love leaf mold. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's brilliant as well. It's just, you know, this amazing resource that fr- just falls naturally from, from the trees for free. Mm. And it makes an amazing seed compost, and there's all sorts of things. We could talk for hours just about, about leaf
0: molds. That's another episode in the pipeline there, Kim.
1: <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> um, but with varieties, yeah, I'm trying lots of different varieties of different crops. So I'm experimenting with lots of different types of French bean. Uh, You know, some of the crops that have struggled over the last couple of years, runner beans, a lot of people had issues with pollination and just with, with runner beans in general, actually. So I'm trying different varieties of lots of different crops just to see what I would particularly recommend. It's not just about the variety. It's also about the way that you grow it. So, mm. say for example, with tomatoes, one of the things that I found that works really well uh, with the, the drought scenario we've been talking about is that you can actually root the stem. So what you can do is root the stem. Yeah, you I
0: saw this just yeah. last night, actually.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. No, great. It works. It works. So tell, well. us,
0: tell us how it works. So, so for those who don't know about this, I, I saw this last night on social media somewhere or other. So it's it's really strange you mentioned this today.
1: It works so well and it's one of the things that has enabled me to keep growing tomatoes despite the the drought, um, lack of water I've had. So you can basically trail the tomato along the ground stem and if you maybe just put a stone or something over the, over the stem, it will encourage it to root. Tomato plants will root through their stem and then you could still secure it up. You could attach it in whichever way you like to do with tomato plants. But what you're doing is you are effectively creating two sources of food and nutrients for the, for, you know, sources for that particular tomato plant. So it makes them much less needy of your attention and watering. So... I was really inspired by, I've been to countries like Spain and Greece before and you see just tomatoes growing wild by the side of the road. So that was my inspiration with this and I've experimented far and wide with it and it works incredibly well. I mean, last summer, my tomatoes just trailed on the ground Mm. um, and I had loads of ground cover and they were just completely wild almost. And they did so incredibly well so no you can do that there's um that's actually one of the best things i'd recommend that you do with tomato plants
0: and to i think help. is that because the the stems that they have this like hairy appearance but those hairs on the stem can become adventitious roots that will then yeah. root down
1: yeah absolutely it's amazing it really is um it's such a fantastic thing to do highly recommended and you actually get bumper harvests as well off the back of it so it's not just the water It's also that the plants are able to seek nutrients from further afield as well. And if you don't also, if you combine that with not giving them any fertilizer or reducing the amount of fertilizer you give them, they're much more inclined to develop deeper, deeper root structures as well, Mm -hmm. which will mean that, again, they can seek out more food and water from further afield. And actually, when you're planting your tomato seedlings out, plant them deeper. As well that's another little trick yeah to actually, plant them deeper in the ground in the first place
0: yeah i again the same clip i was looking at last night actually yeah. showed the seedling being buried almost the whole stalk yeah just the leaves above the surface so that it will root better so something for us all to try there this year kim what's next for you you've you've got the book another book in the pipeline any other projects you can tell us about
1: there is, yeah, there's, I probably can't say what it is, but I've got another book coming out next year. Um, but, you know, for me, I am just doing a lot of work around the whole arena of resilience overall. So I call it gardening for person, plate and planet. So it's about the the ability to, to you know, shore up the defences of climate change, but it's about the, again, the individual, very much around the individual and building resilience. So, And reducing cost, I did the the gardening for free work for The Guardian back in 2013, so this has massively informed the way that I garden, so many different ways, although I do, do buy some things in now, so I'm doing a lot of work around that at the moment. I've got a, I've just got some sponsorship for a online course for food banks in Wales, So I will be making that freely available to food banks in Wales and just lots of work to help people reduce cost and to to shore up the defences with all things that are happening. And this makes me feel good. Mm. Um, So I just I just love being able to pass on those skills and that knowledge. And, you know, the training, I love training in person as well. It's
0: such an enjoyable thing to do. So if anybody is interested in getting you to come along to a gardening club to talk or to do some training, how do they contact you?
1: Oh, thank you. I've got greenrocketcourses.com, so okay. www.greenrocketcourses.com, and I'm on Instagram, um, kim underscore Stoddart, and there's also a Facebook page on Green Rocket Courses, and I'm on Twitter as well. but. The, the website has lots of information about the type of work that I do, but I'm always open to ideas.
0: I just get involved in projects that I feel passionate about. That's wonderful. Kim, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I've learnt loads. I know everybody else out there will have done as well. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Well, I must admit to finding this episode absolutely enthralling. It's the one question on the tips of our tongues at the moment, isn't it? Already this year, we've had a cooler, wetter spring. So what will the summer bring? More drought? More soaring temperatures? How will we, our plants and our crops, cope? As Kim said, their new book, The Climate Change Garden, is available to buy now from all local bookshops and, of course, online. And if you do want more information about Kim and her work, you can head to her website, greenrocketcourses.com. And that's just one word. Or you can find her on Instagram, where she is Kim underscore Stoddart. That's S-T-O-D-D-A-R-T. And as you heard, Kim has a range of both online and face-to-face courses. And all of those details are held on her website. My thanks to Kim for her time and of course to all of you for listening this week. As always, please don't forget to follow and subscribe as there are still more episodes to come. There's no escape. And if you are able, please do leave a review for other listeners. Now, true to form, I won't be heading out into the garden today as it's pouring with rain despite the fact that it's May and we're heading towards early summer but I've got plenty to be getting on within the potting shed so until next week bye bye for now bye bye